we uh, there's not a rule that you have to do, use the three subs. You don't find us competitive. Um, he's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Third Sub Podcast, number 53 to be exact. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Gagiruzic. I'm joined by Samuel Rohn, and we've got a special guest. But before we dive into that special guest who will help us preview Rail Salt Lake versus the Vancouver Whitecaps, Sam, how's it going? It's going great. It's uh, it's raining cats and dogs right now, which... uh is is interesting certainly setting the mood a little bit differently but uh you know embracing that uh pacific northwest weather and uh we had a really good wide-ranging discussion with our guest from uh sb nation's rsl soapbox ian knighton um he's also got an officiating background so on the back end we talked a little bit about var some of the decisions in mls recently tons of good info also very knowledgeable guy not only about Salt Lake's team, but kind of the youth system and how they've been bringing guys up. So tons of good info. We always enjoy these discussions and especially at a time where the Whitecaps have been struggling and maybe just talking about the ins and outs of the team isn't that much fun. It's always good to get into what's going on elsewhere in the league and kind of, you know, break that down a little more precisely. Yeah, I think it was a great chat. I think without further ado, we'll just dive into it. And we'll catch you on the other side. Alrighty, everyone, and here we are with Ian Knighton of the RSL Soapbox, contributor, referee expert, wearer of many hats. He's here to join us to talk Real Salt Lake. So thanks for hopping on, Ian. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me. So I'll let, I'll let Sam go first for this one, but uh, actually, no, I'll, I'll hop in first. Since RSL and the Whitecaps played, I mean, the Whitecaps kind of let's just say it hasn't been great. They've lost four in a row. They've scored one goal. They've conceded way too many to count. You know, how, on the other side, how has RSL kind of fared since that tough last minute loss uh, to Vancouver at home a few weeks ago? I think, I, I think arguably like statistically RSL has fared a little bit better. Um, and we've got one win, one draw and two losses. Um, but that draw and those two losses are, pretty you know not stellar like they're not hard fought um seattle i mean seattle scored three goals on uh what was it saturday or wednesday sorry i'm all messed up on the days uh you know seattle scored three goals they scored two for themselves and one for us which was awfully nice of them but uh we couldn't even pull our own goal back in that situation so i i you know from a point standpoint it's been pretty good but from a play and kind of feeling standpoint it hasn't been that great of a run I guess that would kind of lead into something that's been pretty pretty relevant for a lot of the teams in the Western Conference. I mean, if you're if you're RSL right now, you're looking and you're on 18 points, which you know, in one sense you're down in 10th, but in another sense you're only three points removed from fifth. How in how in such a strange year do you evaluate RSL as a whole? Like, has it been a a season of missed potential, and you're just kind of you still feel positive that the team's in it or are there some major changes needed to kind of take the next step? 
I mean, I, I feel like at this point, like I kind of uh, maybe unfairly kind of lump RSL season in with a lot of the Canadian team seasons is that this is a season in the fact that we're playing, but there's so many asterisks that are going to be attached to 2020 that I don't really know kind of how to read it, right? Um, where the Canadian teams haven't left Canada for however many games and are using other team stadiums for the next however many games. You know, RSL had the incident with Deloy Hansen and basically are in the process of selling the team and couldn't buy anyone in the transfer window and, you know, kind of thing upon thing upon thing. And so um, I, I think a lot of people are kind of, I mean, we're kind of a cynical bunch anyways, um, but I think we're kind of saying, all right, let's just get what we can out of this year. Let's try to get minutes for our younger players. Let's try to make what we can of it and just hope that 2021, we have a new owner, we have someone that's willing to spend money and we can kind of move on past the year of asterisks. Well, I guess it's, in, it's good that you bring up the ownership point because obviously we'll, we'll go to the some of the more soccer-related talks in, in a bit. But for those, I guess, who haven't seen the ownership situation, it's, it, yeah, it hasn't been pretty. Obviously, some some memos, some all sorts of things were leaked on your site. Actually, someone, I, I don't I don't quite remember the name, did an excellent kind of deep dive of just sources all around who used to work with RSL and some of the stories of, of the RSL owner who's, you know, he's, he's been accused of all sorts of misconducts, you know, misogynistic, everything, everything under the sun. It hasn't been pretty. So how has kind of that overlying ownership situation impacted the team? Do you think that's kind of left maybe a bit of a foul taste around everyone in the organization? I, I think it's, I think it's kind of, um, it's got a couple different layers. I think, I, I can't really speak to how the players feel about it. I know, um, Nedamono Oha has been pretty open about things, but a lot of the other players are, have been pretty quiet. Um, I know from like a, from like our standpoint at the Soapbox, at least from my standpoint as being kind of someone that's more involved in the journalistic side of it, uh, all this happening has been really refreshing because bits and pieces of a lot of us knew. And if you've listened to kind of The Athletic and, and stuff like that, a lot of people knew about this stuff, but no one would come forward and put their name on it. And so it was kind of difficult. And so you know, there was a, a few days, I, I think Matt Montgomery, the editor-in-chief at the Soapbox, wrote like 18 articles in one day as this all kind of blew out because, you know, once one person came forward, it kind of opened the floodgates. And so in a way that was kind of like shedding, like we just got rid of a bunch of bad kind of stuff that's been in the club that's kind of been hanging over our heads. Um, but it's also like, I think that there's a lot of just kind of being an American team and being in a kind of conservative area, like that kind of shedding brought with it kind of an influx of like you know, political correctness and kind of those kind of arguments. And so it's like, it's just so topsy turvy. I think from a like real root fan standpoint, from the team standpoint, it feels good as like having that shedding. We've just got to kind of get past this ownership thing and kind of start working on putting this all behind us and go forward with it. Do you think it's fair to say that if if there was a year that you had to do this and had to have this happen, it's it's probably actually kind of good timing because it, it would have been a messed up topsy-turvy season no matter what. And now you've kind of hopefully for 2021, if this is, you know, a little bit behind you, you can start building positively with something more resembling a normal regular season. I, I think the interesting thing 
kind of think about is that I, I was uh, I was having a conversation about this the other day is that if the MLS does what every what the NWA or the WNBA, the NBA, the NHL, and everyone did and said, okay, we're going to have this bubble tournament and that's it, that's our season. If the MLS does that, none of this happens. The the LAFT game doesn't happen. There's no protests. Deloy Hansen doesn't go on his radio station and start running his mouth. Like none of this happens. And so really like this year had to be the way it was in order for this to happen. So it's great that it happened in this way, but there's really like this scenario is the only way that we could get people to come forward and deal with this and kind of get this out there. And so it's, it's kind of, you know, a, a mixed bag, right? Like it's good to have it happen this year. Cause like I said, we're already going to follow the whole season with asterisks, but it's also, you know, this season is the only season that this probably could have happened, which is great that it happened this way, I guess. Well, I guess kind of, yeah, to talk a bit about the, the soccer now, I mean, recently losses to Seattle and LAFC were the, the two losses of the, uh, out of the last four that you mentioned and kind of what was the, the case of those, those losses for, for RSL? Was it maybe a case of just being outmanned, just Seattle and LAFC's quality or just kind of poor performances and maybe not playing up to the, to their full potential? I think a lot of it comes down to kind of weird rotation patterns, fatigue, card accumulation. Like the team had a couple, what I'll call stupid cards. Um, Beckerman got the red card when Vancouver was in town. Uh, Glad got yellow card accumulation suspension. Um, So that's kind of part of it. And then we kind of, it's really exposed some of the areas that we don't have the roster depth that we thought we had on the team. Um, our center back, yes, we have four players listed as center back, but two of those that, you know, we have one center back pairing that is really, really good and glad and, no, and on, glad and Onuoha. But as you kind of have to move people in and out of that position, all of a sudden it, it kind of breaks down. And then you kind of look at what's had to happen and glad has had to go play right back. And so we're, we're putting three center backs in, but glad's not playing center back. He's playing right back because Schmidt or Herrera or someone else needs rotation. So kind of as those rotations happen, it's really showing that players aren't as flexible as we thought they were. And we don't have the depth in those positions that we need, which is why I think a lot of us kind of looked at the transfer window and said, yeah, under another circumstance, it would have been great to bring in players on the transfer window. And I think that's why they signed a lot of players from the Monarchs is because it really exposed, like we've got some gaps that we need to fill and until the ownership stuff is dealt with, we can't really fill them. So I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is coming into the MLS kind of second season, um, RSL changed some things. I think they kind of switched to a more high pressing system and they've stopped playing to the team and they've started playing their own style, which was great. We saw the team beat Colorado 4-1, but Colorado figured it out. And Colorado came to Salt Lake and beat us 5-0. Uh, same thing happened with LAFC. We beat LAFC 3-1, I think. And then LAFC comes in and just wipes the floor with us because everyone was able to figure out kind of, okay, they're going to pull the center backs forward. They're going to try to press high. Well, Marcelo Silva can't outrun most attacking players. And so you're putting them in bad positions and then Putna can't play out of the back. And so it's kind of a, you know, I think we got found out a little bit. So I think it's kind of two things is it's, you know, kind of rotation, it's getting figured out. And then it's just players that 
aren't performing the way that they need to be performing because of the fact that they're having to play so many games or play out a position. So building on that, on, on kind of diving into a little bit of the tactical discussion, I, when I kind of look back at the last five or six matches, it seemed like for a while there, RSL was set in a in a four two three one, and then against Seattle went with five at the back. Is that is that a new kind of style, new tactics that RSL is trying to employ, or do you see them kind of going back to to old faithful and something familiar against against the Whitecaps specifically, but then also kind of down the line? Uh, you know, I think that the five at the back thing, I think they changed that pretty quickly into the game and went back to kind of that four, two, three, one shape that we normally play in. So I, I can see them kind of going back to that pretty quickly, just depending on who's available. Um, so I think that kind of plays into it. A lot of it though, is like, you know, like I said, like having to kind of shuffle players, like I, uh, I just looked at the injury report and Netamonoaha is unavailable for Vancouver. And so, you know, that means that we have three center backs and, you know, that kind of puts us in a position where how do we, how do we make that shape? And a five man back line doesn't really work if you only have three center backs and Herrera is a great player, but he can't play center back. And so it's kind of a, you know, I, I think they'll probably go back to that four, two, three, one, if nothing else to give a rotation option in center back. Well, kind of building off the defensive question. Uh, I just was wondering because it, it was something that hit my mind when uh, the white caps played RSL, but What's up with the, the Real Salt Lake goalkeeping situation? Because obviously Vancouver was familiar with sending Zach McMath over, and it was a bit of a surprise to see him not play against his former team. And Andrew Putna has been, been seemed to have been solid. So what kind of what's kind of going on there? Is is Putna? Do you think Putna has been a good choice as the number one? Have you know how has McMath played? Kind of how's that whole situation played out? Um, I think. I think the I think it's very complicated because obviously Nick Ramondo, right? Like that's kind of the end all be all when we have a conversation about goalkeepers. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily fair of a comparison to make, but that's you know, we've had that same goalkeeper for so long and the development behind him didn't really ever happen because, you know, he'd play almost every game through a season and then Putna would go down to the monarchs and maybe play a little bit, or you know, we brought McMath in and all of a sudden we've got McMath, who has kind of had some off and on seasons, and Putna, who really hasn't played a lot of MLS minutes, um, coming in, and they neither one of them really fit the style of the defense. Um, you know, I, I've our our local commentator makes a lot of comments about how Putna can kick the ball ninety yards, which he can, but our forwards aren't fast enough to get to it, and so it's like it's good that he can clear the ball, but we need him to play it out of the back and he can't play it out of the back. McMath is a little bit better at playing out of the back, but McMath kind of crumbles under pressure. And so it's kind of a, you know, it depends on how the team's going to be set up to do that. And I think, you know, I was a huge fan when McMath came in and I still am a huge fan of McMath, but that was coming from his time at Colorado before Tim Howard came in. And he played really, really well before Tim Howard came in. And I thought it was just a disgrace that they put Tim Howard in over him because he was how the Rapids made that run into the playoffs is because McMath was so good. But that was because the defensive line in Colorado was so good. It's it, So they set a low block and they hold that block. RSL doesn't play that way. They play more forward. They don't play as forward as some teams, but they play more forward than Colorado did. And McMath crumbles in a one-on-one -on -one situation and that's what we saw 
the last couple of games he played is you put him one-on-one, two-on-one, and he just doesn't know what to do. And it's just because he's used to kind of having at least two people in front of him that can protect him. And so I think ultimately the plan is to bring Ochoa and have Ochoa play from the Monarchs. He's now on an RSL contract, but he, I think he broke his thumb before the MLS's back, his, MLS's back tournament. And so he missed that whole tournament with a broken thumb. And then he's been playing for the Monarchs, but because of the quarantine policy going into the MLS, he, they basically played him until this next set of games came out at the Monarchs, and then he's done the quarantine process. So I think he might be available, if not this weekend, he'll be available next weekend for Portland, or next week for Portland. Now, if he plays, that's a whole different thing because he has zero MLS minutes, but he was really good at the Monarchs and he does have the tactical skill to play out of the back and he's little and he's fast and he's smart and he's stood up to some pretty good attackers in the, in the USL. So at this point, we're third from the bottom. We might as well give him a run and give him some time to shake it out now instead of trying to do it next season. So that's, that's, that's some good, really good info there. Um, in terms of in terms of the white caps and what they can look to do obviously you know the white caps have had a lot of difficulties exposing teams but if if the white caps you know if mark DeSantis is in the lab watching film what can he look to take advantage of is it that you know unknown in goal is it the lack of defensive depth or is there somewhere else on the roster that a guy like mark DeSantis might look to attack I think I think that it's I think it's there's two things that to to really look for is one is how to kind of uh, not really play route one but kind of play a route one style because it is what has happened in so many of these goals is um, the center backs come up and they can't come back they're not fast enough to come back so we've seen it might have even been the the White Caps game where. Um, I think it was Montero's goal at the end where he slid into the goal and Marcelo Silva was behind him and Silva just can't keep up. So if you can create those situations where you're going one-on-one, going two-on-one into goal and those center backs are in kind of the middle third of the field, I think that that's kind of a, a really good, I mean, Seattle proved it again. And that's kind of a really good way to expose kind of the weaknesses in RSL. Um, the other thing is to push them wide. Um, you know, if you can, I think that was the one thing that LA did this time that they didn't do when we beat LA, uh, LAFC that is, is when we beat LAFC, it was kind of on the ability of Putna to put the ball right behind their defensive line and the attacking players to drive back into the middle. And is what LAFC did is they started boxing them out and making them go deeper. So they would push their defensive line back Putna would put the ball 70, 80 yards. Now Douglas Martinez is three on one in a corner and can't get the ball out of that corner. And so it it kind of exposes that, you know, we've got two players that can run fast. And if you can get them out wide, it's going to take time for the middle to catch up, especially with if Kyle Beckerman plays like he's, he's getting old, he's getting a little slow. Like he's got to, he's got to have time to get up there and it gives your defense time to set up and kind of set that line of confrontation before they make that next move. Kind of one player I, I do want to touch on individually because at least it was it was probably a case of kind of just the White Gaps game in particular. He stood out and had I think like four or five shots. He was everywhere. As Pablo Ruiz, the the twenty one year old Argentine, 
you know, how has he, how's he been uh, other than the Vancouver game where I guess to, he kind of endeared himself or showed himself well in front of the Whitecaps? How has he been this season? And is he someone that maybe RSL is trying to get a little more out of as they try to push up here? I, I think Ruiz is going to be an important part of RSL's future in one of two ways. Um, either he stays with the team and he reshapes that attacking midfield or he goes away for a lot of money. Um, he is a player that we signed in 2018, I believe. In 2019, he went on a loan deal to Austria. And, you know, kind of by all accounts from everyone involved, he became a professional in Austria. Like he learned a lot about himself, how to play, kind of how to get through things. Um, and we're seeing kind of the fruits of that this year. Um, I, I, I don't see a lot of situations where he stays with the team for very long because he is so good. It's just how many seasons can we keep him on and, and get the most out of him before he kind of moves on to another team because he is an incredibly dynamic player. Like he, he hits those balls on goal from 40 yards out. Like it's nothing and does it all day and they're all on frame. And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of amazing to watch. Um, it's just a matter of can the team kind of work or kind of, kind of build around him and work within that and kind of make him more of a focal point. And I, you know, we'll have to see what happens going forward, but I, I don't think right now the team is set up to do that. So I think he'll probably won't be with us for very long. I think it's kind of my feelings on it. So it is the sense that this off season would probably be when he would, when he would go somewhere else. Like, is it that, that imminent or is there a chance you, you keep him for the 2021 season? I, I, th I think this winter would be kind of hard for him to move, but I, I don't see him staying with us through the summer transfer window in 2021. Um, you know, unless everything just goes completely pear-shaped, uh, you know, I think the hopefully, you know, if everything goes right and we can get kind of everything in order, the beginning of the 2021 season will be really when everyone gets to see what he's capable of. Um, as kind of the team, you know, gets an actual preseason and a lot of stuff and gets kind of that space in between games. Uh, Cause I do think, I mean, he made a name for himself in Austria. So if nothing else, he's already kind of got European connections and connections in South America. It's just a matter of showing that he's worth those bigger moves. I saw that. Was he, so was he loaned to somewhere in like the third division in Austria or was that where RSL bought him from? He was loaned there. He was uh, FC Pinsgate is where he went and so he was he was loaned as well along with a couple other rsl players who had kind of been middling around in the monarchs a little bit they loaned i think three players over and he's one that's came back and just immediately kind of made an indent on the on the first team squad so is that like a, a formal partnership with that club or is it just something that kind of materialized because it's interesting we're seeing more and more mls clubs either do formal or kind of unofficial partnerships with clubs in europe I, I don't I don't know if it's um, I think it's it's because of a shared person. Um, so uh, Trey Fitzgerald, who used to be involved with RSL, is involved with FC Pinskow. So I think he kind of helped broker that trade. Um, I think that at some point there was kind of mumblings of it being more of a partnership, but I don't know if anything ever kind of really came out of that because we saw those three players go over on loan and come back and haven't really seen anything since. So. Well, kind of to build off the, the Ruiz talks, it's definitely a question that both Sam and I had is when looking at this RSL team, who right now is the most important player? Is it still Kyle Beckerman? You know, he's been there for so long. Is it someone like Ruiz? Is it Albert Rusnak? Could even be someone like Dimer Kralak or Sam Johnson? Like, I guess to say 
because it's obviously it's a form-based question, but when they're at their best, who's the player that RSL is looking to rely on the most? I, I think it's I think it's a combination of Crylock and Rusnak, which I think is kind of puts us in a weird spot for the next little bit, is because Rusnak is on international duty. Um, I think Crylock is kind of he's a great player. He's a great he's great with the ball. Like you can look at the highlights of him, you know, making the Cobra Kai kick and kind of all that stuff. And um, you know, he is a very good player. But more than anything, he's he's kind of like a a spiritual guide for the team, like. Uh, he when he re-signed the contract, a bunch of articles and stuff came out about kind of the impact he's had on players and had on staff. And so I think he's really like kind of a positive force for the team. And he does also help score goals and put things in the position and put things in position. To the contrary, Rusnak is the midfielder that will get down and dirty. Rusnak is the guy that will step on your ankle if you shove him. Like Rusnak is kind of that he's he's not on the Kyle Beckerman end of the spectrum. He's kind of the middle. Um, and then Beckerman is Beckerman is chaotic evil, right? Beckerman is, you know, he is who he is, right? And so I think, you know, if you can get all three of them working together, I think it works really well because you kind of get the dark arts and the light side kind of going together. We just haven't seen it this year, and I don't know if we will see it this year kind of because of the compressed schedule. So um, I think to, to answer your question, um, you know, I think it's it's – I'd have to say right now it's Crylock. Like kind of Crylock is going to be the force that drives this team through the end of this season. Um, but it, a lot of it depends on on the day and the game otherwise. So we talked about uh, Ruiz already as a guy that stood out from the, the last fixture between these two teams. But the other guy that stood out to me, I guess somewhat surprisingly, because it maybe wasn't something I expected, was... Is that... Do you just say it Michael? Michael Chang? Or is it... Or does he pronounce that differently? It's it's Michael, so it's it's kind of an emphasis on the case of so Michael Chang. Okay, so Michael Chang. I mean, so this it's a, he's a Cuban, twenty nine year old, and from looking through like transfer market and stuff like that, it seemed like he's bounced around. He was with the Monarchs, but he'd also bounced around. I think Charlotte, Charleston, or Charlotte, or something like that. A couple other USL, you know, lower division US teams. I was just he had five key passes and an assist against Vancouver and really like showed out. So I was just curious for the, has he been on that kind of form throughout the season or was that an outlier match? And just what's, what's the story with this guy? You know, I, I think Michael Chang is really like, um, I mean, so Michael Chang played for the Charleston battery from the time he defected from Cuba until 2018. Um, so he played for the Charleston battery. I think he scored 17 goals in the entire time he was there. I think last the last two years in the Monarchs, he scored something like 20. Like he's, he's, I think he's really found a home and found a system that he clicks with. Um, and I think kind of, if we look at last year and kind of, cause I mean, I'm, I'm going to kind of temper this a little bit. A lot of us supporters of the Monarchs really love Michael Chang. Like he is, he has been a, a, a man of the supporters since, the, since he came and, you know, he really kind of at when we when the Monarchs won the USL championship, he kind of pushed to bring the supporters group onto the field because the security didn't want them to come on the field. He said, "No, no, this is my family," and he brought them onto the field. So he's very much like endeared in this in this area. Um, and so I think between that, getting the first team contract, and then actually getting to start in the first team with Ja Pata and uh, Savarino leaving. Like, I think he's just, he's ready to go. Like, you know, he kind of did the meddling around in USL. 
he got a championship with the Monarchs and now he's ready to go full speed and we're seeing that he just doesn't stop. And it's, you know, it's, he doesn't always have that many key passes, but he's always in key situations. He's always there for an outlet ball. He's always there to make it, make it happen. So um, it's good to see him doing that. Again, I think it's another player that, you know, hopefully we can keep for a while because I do think even though he is getting older, I think there's a lot of MLS teams that could use a smart pacey winger that wants to play. And I think that's exactly what he is. One thing I must say, and I'm just, I'm, I'm getting a bit of a secondhand jealousy from the, the Monarchs talk. And I know Sam will probably agree just because the Whitecaps, they used to have a second team in Vancouver and then they obviously, they got rid of it. So it's, it's good to hear the, the, you know, the kind of the pipeline between the two and how that agreement's been working out. But I guess maybe on a similar path, is there any one or even a few young up-and-comers, maybe in the Monarchs, Monarchs, maybe in RSL, maybe just in their system that people in MLS should know about or start knowing about because they're going to make an impact uh, maybe in the next year or two, say, maybe? Um, I, I think if you... I think RSL's kind of made their name the last few years about being really homegrown heavy. Um, you know, I think I want to say it was 2018. We had the most homegrown minutes out of any team in MLS, um, which is something we're really proud of, but it, it's, it's gotten to a point where when I saw this question, I was like, okay, well, I mean, it can't be Justin glad cause Justin glad's not young. And then I remember Justin glad's 21, you know, Aaron Herrera's young, uh, you know, all these players are, are still very young they just have been playing first few minutes since they were 17 or 18. And so it's kind of like, you know, Glad has been a staple of our back line for three years now, and he's still in his early 20s. And so I think that's kind of a good sign. I think you, to kind of go to the root of the question, I think Chris Garcia is probably going to be kind of that next, um, the next kind of real opportunity we have to have a really kind of national shining player. Um, from he hasn't played a lot of first team minutes in the actual season, but when he played in preseason, you know, he was able to come in into a preseason game with Kansas city, who is, I, there's a lot of bad blood between RSL and Kansas city and hold his ground and play forward and play attacking and push, you know, players in Kansas city, like Roger Espinoza and not be afraid of it. And that's, I think going to be a really shining thing. I think the other one is David, o, David Ochoa. I think, going into the U20 World Cup or um, yeah, the U20 World Cup and the Olympics, it was kind of thought that he would probably be the first or second choice goalkeeper. Um, he is very, very skilled both as a goalkeeper and as, you know, he could probably come up and play a midfielder if he needed to. Um, so he has that skill set. He has the speed, he has the pace. So I think, I think if I had to pin it down to the actual young players that not everyone knows about and not everyone's kind of used to, I think I'd say Chris Garcia and David Ochoa. As a follow-up to that uh, development question, the the Vancouver Whitecaps, I mean, Thomas Hall was a good success story this year, but even that was kind of thrust upon the team by injury and then the absence of Brian Meredith. And the Whitecaps really struggled, whether it's losing their second team or just kind of overall structure, to get those guys from the 18 to 22-year-old age group integrated into the roster and being impactful. You talked about some of those guys that have come in and they're, you know, they've been in the first team since they're 17, 18. Is there something that RSL is doing right at that younger development level, level to make those guys MLS ready earlier? 
Uh, I think if I'm a, I think if I, you know, put on my cynic hat, it's because we've had to, we've had a kind of an owner that didn't want to spend money. And so he, you know, we can say a lot of things and we have said a lot of things about Delo Hansen, but when he kind of took over, he really fortified our Arizona Academy that we had and then spent a lot of money moving the Academy to Utah and building out an Academy system in Utah. And so a part of that was to try to make the team profitable. And that's worked because I think, I, I don't remember what it was. I don't remember what magazine it was, but RSL is one of the few teams that I think was close to profitability because of that ability, because of kind of the other revenue sources that they have coming in. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of the, the highlight of it. The cynic is, you know, they didn't want to buy a center back. They didn't want to buy a right back. And so instead of buying a right back, they brought Brooks Lennon up who was naturally a right winger and moved him back. And, you know, they didn't want to buy a left back. So they moved Aaron Herrera, who was naturally right back to the left back, or, you know, they flipped those things around and it's great because it, it gave them minutes and gave them experience and they were able to prove themselves, but it's also just a matter of necessity that they had to do that. Um, you know, I hope that to a certain degree, we can kind of keep that attitude as the team goes forward and as we get new owners, because there's always the allure of new owners spending a lot of money. But, you know, I think that we kind of have that proof now that we're playing, now that we've, now that we're playing those players where they belong, we're seeing how good they actually are. If you put them in their natural position and yes, they did well in those other positions, but they're good. And so I think that hopefully we can continue to develop that. Now, what happens to the academy system under new ownership? No one knows. Like that's supposedly it's all part of the deal, but you know, hopefully new ownership comes in and has that same passion for that kind of becoming a selling team concept and is willing to continue to invest in that and continue to build out those teams because we, we want to continue to see this kind of pipeline come through. Kind of one of one of the last maybe questions for me I, 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 that I'll put out there. I was just wondering how Freddy Juarez, the you know the head coach, how he's been, how his tenure has been so far in RSL because obviously before him it was Mike Petke who was there for a long time, and then at the end of his tenure made some homophobic comments, got got the sack. It was and he but you know even before then he's always been a he was always kind of a maybe a lightning rod for controversy. But how has Freddie Juarez been kind of rated amongst maybe fans and media and even just kind of your personal opinion on him since he's been, you know, put in as the head coach after he got a little stint as the interim? I, I think Freddie is, Freddie is, is just such a polar opposite to Petke in so many ways that it's amazing that they were ever able to work together. And, you know, like, cause he is very calm and collected and he doesn't, he doesn't get fired up and he doesn't like doing interviews and he kind of, you know, he's just very level headed. Um, I, so I, I think that's kind of one half of it. The other half of it is because he's so level headed, he doesn't make brash decisions. And sometimes there needs to be that decision. And so I think if I'm, you know, from my standpoint, I think really, you know, I think he's a great coach, but he doesn't kind of let that passion take over him and make a change kind of on the fly. It, a lot of times it seems like he's made the decision before the game. And unless there's an injury that forces his hand, he just doesn't change anything. And so we see a lot of really late substitutions and a lot of substitutions that kind of don't make sense. You know, if you're down three, one, you know, why do you put another defender on, right? Like you don't have any loss in that, you know, if, 
if you're if Kyle Beckerman gets a red card because that happens all the time you know how do you make that change and it it seems like he's kind of thought about it and he's wrote it down in a notebook and hasn't really watched the game sometimes and so like I think that's kind of the beef that a lot of fans have with him because you know it's it's very easy when you lose to go back and say oh well if Giuseppe Rossi comes on Giuseppe Rossi changes the game well, Giuseppe Rossi hasn't been on the roster for like two months. Like he can't change the game if he's not even getting medically cleared. Um, and so I, I, I personally think he's a great coach. I don't think that he is the best option going forward, but I also don't think that they should ever take him out of the staff because he is, especially with those homegrown players, he's worked with them since they were 12. You know, he was the academy coach. And so he's brought a lot of these kids up. He brought them to the Monarchs. He coached at the Monarchs. He came up from the Monarchs to RSL. You know, him and Tyron Marshall are kind of really responsible for a lot of these players and their success. And so I, I want to see him always part of the staff, but I just don't, I don't think sometimes he makes those passionate decisions that really get everyone going. And honestly, that's what everyone loved Petkey for is Petkey did and said a lot of really stupid things, but he was so passionate that everyone just loved to see him kind of lose it and make a wholesale substitution for no reason. And if we won the game, he was the hero, like, and it kind of got forgotten, you know? That's, it's very interesting because, I mean, our, our podcast is called a third sub for a reason. And we've got in our, in our opener, a clip of Mark saying, there's a rule you don't, there, there isn't a rule that you have to use the third sub. And that was kind of the, the infancy of our, our podcast. So I think in some ways, Dos Santos is very similar in that, I think the, the point you made about, you know, you write it down in the notebook and really at some points it feels like the manager is not even watching the match. We've definitely had that same feeling. And I guess that kind of brings us to the match itself. And if you're, if you're willing, Ian, to take your, your crystal ball out, have a look in it, how do you see these two teams matching up? Is it going to go differently than last time? What are your thoughts, hopes, expectations? So... At this point, I think, um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty burned out on kind of hoping. Uh, I don't know if y'all watched Ted Lasso, but the last episode of Ted Lasso, I can't get that idea is the hope that kills you out of my mind. Um, so I've just been really kind of pessimistic about everything. Um, I do think though, that like with kind of the mentality of a lot of the players on RSL, they're going to have a chip on their shoulder after what happened when Vancouver came to the Rio Tinto. Um, especially Kyle, if Kyle comes on. And as long as Kevin Stott isn't the referee, I think Kyle will be fired up about that. Um, now, if Kevin Stott's the referee, everything goes out the window. I just want to say that. Say that. But uh, I think, I, I think I'd, I'm not going to pick a winner, but I, I, I think it's a one-goal difference, one way or the other. I think it's 1-2, 3-2, something like that. I think there's one goal between the two teams, and if it goes to a draw, it'll be a very, very late garbage time goal that, that draws it out. I think it'll be a fight to the bitter end. I, I expect probably one red card. Hopefully it's not Douglas or Kyle because I don't think they can get any more red cards this season. You know, but like, I, I just, I think that Vancouver is kind of put in a situation where they're playing in Portland, which is... I think I, you know, if I was a player, I'd be mad about that because like there's kind of the Portland rivalry already. And then you're saying, okay, well you have to play in their home and pretend it's yours. So, uh, you know, Vancouver's hopefully going to come in with a chip on their shoulder. Salt Lake's going to come in with a 
chip on their shoulder and be like, hey, you guys beat us at our home and everyone thought we were going to walk all over you. And so I, I just see it just being a clash of the Titans. Now, now that I've said it out loud, Vancouver is probably going to score seven goals and, you know, we're going to lose all three goalkeepers in one game just because that's the way this season is going. So, Yeah, so the one thing that stood out to me from this matchup was, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think over essentially the last eight, ten 10 matches for one team, eight matches for the other, those matches have had over two and a half goals like 90% of the time. So I think we're, we're probably safe. And as I say this, it'll, it'll probably happen, you know, in the inverse. But it feels like we might be safe from a nil-nil or a 1-1. And I, I, I'm, I'll definitely back you there where I think that I think that RSL is going to gonna eke out a, a one-goal victory over the white caps because it just it feels like it feels like things are tumbling down the hill for the white caps right now and there's not a lot of saving in so maybe rsl can get a little bit of revenge but i like i like your breakdown of it there i think that's a pretty pretty accurate summation yeah yeah and like i said i mean it I think now that you and I have both said that, it will end up being nil-nil. It'll be the most boring 90 minutes of soccer you've ever watched. Um, you know, and we'll kind of just go about it. And next week, we'll try to pretend it didn't happen as we go different directions, you know? I mean, I'll, I guess I'll be the antithesis. I'll, I'll go for the 1-1 the again because, yeah, I mean, seven. I like the idea of seven. I'd love to see seven goals combined from both teams. A 4-3, like... Boy, I don't even think the Whitecaps have scored seven goals since they came back from MLS's back. So, well, maybe actually, I think they have, but it, it's it's closer than it should have been. But I'll say one-one because I said that for the San Jose game, and to be fair, it was gonna it was a nil-nil until halftime, and then the Whitecaps forgot how to play soccer for 15 minutes. So, assuming they they don't have have a lapse like that, they're the only team in MLS not to draw. I think they match up pretty well against RSL if the last game's any indication. I I, I don't know. I'm gonna go for the one-one. I'm gonna be the the boring one. Well, see, then we've got all the bases covered. Now it's just up to the gods to figure it out. So, <laughs> okay, Ian, I've got one more question for you because you you come from a little bit of a a soccer officiating background. So I'm not sure how many of the Whitecaps matches or incidents you've seen recently, but I'd be curious for your thoughts on if you did see the Eric Godoy red card that was rescinded. Or the uh, Lucas Cavallini, so in Vancouver versus Seattle, the penalty he drew that went to VAR and just the whole mess that was made of that situation. I I did not see that. I did see your guys' tweet earlier about the, the red card being rescinded, but I haven't had a chance to look at it. Um, from the way that you set it up, though, I can only imagine that it was uh Well, what was interesting time. was... So Lucas Cavallini's driving towards the box and he's fouled or he maybe even fouls the Seattle defender outside the area. But then as he's going to ground, there's like a clipping of legs between the two in the area. So initially the official called a straight red card and a penalty as well. And then you look at it on the replay and it's basically like a foul on Lucas Cavallini outside the box, but they go to VAR and the decision is changed to a yellow, but they still give the penalty. It was just, it was just a huge mess and, and a co- complete mismanaging of both, I guess, the initial decision and the, uh, and the VAR review. And it seems like they're kind of, I don't know if you've experienced this through some RSL matches, but it felt like, it's felt so far this season like the MLS 
you know, officials are very cautious about how they're using VAR. It feels like unless there's a, you know, unless it's clear and obvious beyond any doubt, they seem very scared to use that review capability. I, I think it's, I think it's two things. And I did just watch this while you're, while you were talking and that is phenomenal that that went the way it did. Um, I think it's two things. I think, so I had a, an interaction with Greg Barkey from pro on YouTube a couple of weeks ago because we had an incident when RSL played in Minnesota where the Minnesota goalkeeper carried the ball back into his own net and like he held his arms out and it was pretty dicey. It looked like it was over the line, right? And they go, oh, well, we went to VAR, check complete. We can't prove that it went over the line. And it's like, well, what do you mean? And so they show it on their you know, VAR review or they didn't show it. And that's why I kind of asked. And he said, oh, well, we didn't have a camera on the goal line. Well, what do you mean you don't have a camera on the goal line? Like that seems like the most important place to be for there to be a camera. And is what he said is that depending on where the game is broadcast, they either have 10 cameras or they have up to 24 cameras that are available to the VAR. And so in those cases where it is an RSL game, where we're not going to get nationally broadcast unless we're playing LAFC, there's only 10 cameras available to the VAR. And they're the 10 cameras that are made available by the stadium. There's no mandate on what those cameras need to be. So I think that's kind of the first part of it is that they're just, I think last season, given a normal season with the, without the short turnarounds, there was somewhat of an expectation of every cameras available to VAR. And now teams have kind of figured out how to adjust that. I've read, I don't remember where I read it, but next year they are mandating where the cameras need to be in every stadium for VAR and how many cameras need to be available. So I think that's part of it is just that the cameras aren't available because we've seen a lot of situations with RSL where they're, you know, VAR could not make a conclusive call. Um, I think actually it was Minnesota again, that one of the Minnesota players shoved Albert Rusnak in the face or what it looked like from the camera on their roof. That was the only camera that saw the thing. And so they couldn't zoom in on it. They couldn't actually prove that it was his face that he got shoved by. So they just, they can't go back on it. And so that's kind of, I think, part of it. I think the other part of it is, is VAR has become such a big part of the narrative and they're trying to really kind of refine that, what the threshold is. And I think that's why I was so shocked by what happened when Vancouver was in our, was in Salt Lake last is that, um, and I, I wrote an article explaining this on the soapbox, but it's very, very rare to give a yellow card in the eighth minute, like for any reason, unless it's like just terribly egregious. And so Kyle Beckerman seeing a yellow card in the eighth minute is just, how does that happen for his first foul in the game? He gets a yellow card. So then you go into the second half and the Hassal incident happens. And, and I personally don't think that that should have gone to review. Like I understand kind of how it on, in slow-mo it looked bad, but you can also see Hassal doesn't have control of the ball Kyle tries to kick it. Hassal puts his head under the boot. That's actually, and, and to, to kind of tangent here, that's actually on the exam for one of my certifications this year was what happens if a player puts their foot, puts their head down as a player goes up to kick it. Well, if they're both trying to play the ball, there's no foul. It's a 50-50. And so Hassal puts his head under Kyle's foot. And when Kyle brings his foot down, he hits him. I can understand it being reckless. I can understand it being yellow, but now you've got that knock on of, okay, it was set for serious foul play, which it would never have been serious foul play. 
it comes back and they're like, oh, well, it's not serious foul play. Here's a yellow for a reckless tackle. Now it's a red because we gave you one earlier. And so I just think stuff like that has kind of made it so they're trying to kind of fill out a higher threshold. I think we really saw it in the playoffs last year. Um, I think there was, you know, again, being kind of an RSL homer, I'm literally wearing an RSL hat right now. Um, They, you know, I think it was Seattle. Watching the TV replays, there were three handballs that would have gone against Seattle in the RSL Seattle game in the semifinals. And not a single one of them got reviewed and not a single one of them got talked about. Not a single one of them came up on the YouTube channel, like nothing. And it's like, okay, how have we been reviewing these little trifling fouls all season? And now we're not doing that. And so I think that kind of set the pace for this season is to be like, okay, it has to be pretty clear. We have to be able to zoom in on it. We have to be able to see it. And if we cannot meet all those criteria, you know, we can't do it. And I guess I'd add a third thing is that, a lot of these referees are doing like are doing games every four days, which is incredibly difficult at a professional level to be a referee. And so they're going from, you know, being the center official to being a fourth official to being a VAR and every four days they're having to travel all over and they're having to go through everything that the players are going through. And so I just think that there's a degree of like sloppiness that's going to happen just like it happens with players. They, they get a bad touch. I think it's acceptable to a certain degree to have a referee like a fourth official allow a substitute that's not on the roster, which we saw last week, you know, it's, it's a crazy situation, but it, it's something that when you're, because I mean, a, a lot of people don't realize that like pro pres, like pre, presents the referees with like dossiers on the team to like review and they do a pre-match briefing. They do a debrief pro sends them video and highlights and what to watch for and where fouls are. And so they're having to constantly keep all of this in their head, travel and do all this other stuff. And so I think it's just, it's kind of, everyone's getting fatigued. Everyone's getting tired. So you see an opportunity where it's like, okay, we're giving you a yellow card, but we're also giving them a penalty kick. And it just, how, how does that make sense? Like, how does that, how does one not precede the other? And so, you know, I think there's a lot of it that's going on there. Um, and so it's a very complicated thing, but at the same time, I'm also sitting at home going, why did you make that call? Like, what are you you doing? Like, you know, that's, this is, this is seriously like plainly written in the laws of the game. How do you not understand that? You know? Yeah. I think I'm, I'm all for reducing the frequency of video review use so long as that standard is very clearly defined and consistent. And I think you made a, you made a good point about the playoffs and, you know, they're not looking at handballs, but throughout the year they'd used VAR for little dinky fouls that probably never should have gone to VAR in the first place. So I think it's just about that. If the threshold's going to be incredibly high to, to have VAR step in, that just needs to be, needs to be clear and well thought out. But, uh, you know, hopefully they're able to find that balance, but it does feel like this year is probably not the best year to do it because, you know, challenges for everyone involved, whether it's sporting directors, whether it's scouts, whether it's players, you know, it applies to everyone. It's been an absolute mess and do expect the best performance out of everyone's probably a little bit unfair. Yeah. We're, we're like Oprah here, just handing out asterisks to everyone's performance this year, I think. (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, for me, the one thing I'd want to say is just, just all about getting as much consistency in it as possible. And that's always the challenge and that that's very interesting the point you made about the conversation you had with pro because 
I had no idea that in different stadiums, the camera angles differ. And I feel like that, for example, is one glaring example of inconsistency that should be fixed. And now that you bring it up, I'm thinking, I mean, Sam, there's no goal line camera in BC Place, for example. There's, I don't think so. There's never been an incident like that, but there isn't a camera. I can't think of ever seeing one on TV. So, I mean, first of all, MLS should have goal line technology. I feel like that's just, <laughs> that's a given based on how easy to use that technology is. Obviously, it's a bit of, it's a bit expensive, but yeah, I think for me, it's all about consistency. I don't mind at first if you use VAR a lot, provided that players know what the standard is and they learn from their mistakes. So they reduce the amount of infractions based on what they know they're going to get called on. But I feel like that's a long-term project. And I think last year was kind of on a, maybe at times on a good path, but it feels like this year it's kind of been topsy-turvy as we kind of mentioned throughout the, the stories here. Yeah, I think I think kind of goal line technology is like one of those things that just comes into the money, like just the financials of it is because, I mean, that's kind of is what we saw last year as we saw kind of MLS take MLS and the Bundesliga kind of take this like step back approach and the Premier League where money is not an object. They went goal line technology. They had Nighthawk put on all the fields like they put all that work in and they were able to decide offside by millimeters. And so it's just kind of like um kind of the argument that i make with a lot of people is that the laws of the game still have to be written so that way i can go out and referee a u14 game by myself without var without kind of all those things and so they still have to write for that audience because it is still a global game but certain leagues have introduced this very very high level technology that they have to figure out how to kind of balance and rein it in so because they are starting to use var in youth cup games like the adidas cup games they have var and you know they're they're starting to it's it's becoming more and more available so they are starting to use it in these lower leagues so the laws of the game have to make sense at every tier of the game not just here's laws of the game for everyone else and here's laws of the game for the top five leagues and i think that kind of we're still trying to fill that out we're still trying to figure out who's going to move what and what leagues are going to do what and what that kind of happy medium is well, yeah, I guess kind of on that note, I think that's that's all that we have today. I mean, that, the refereeing insight was very, very good. I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners might uh, might appreciate some of the, the finer details you went into. But I guess before we go, give yourself a shout out, Ian, where can people find your work and any anything that you're working on that you want to shout out in, in particular? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. It's, um, the, it's Swallowed Whistle without the E on the end because apparently I ran out of letters. Um, so, uh, you can find me on the soapbox. Um, I also cover some women's soccer over on backline soccer, and I produce a podcast called the profile podcast where we primarily focus on women's soccer. Um, so if that's something that interests you, you know, it is pretty us centric, but as a Hispanic American, we also talk a lot about Liga MX. Um, so we're kind of, we have a very broad kind of scope on things. And so. Um, but yeah, follow me on Twitter. I don't use it a ton anymore, but that's where my articles go. And every once in a while, I get a fire in my belly and write something about write something on the soapbox about how I hate Kevin Stott, and you know, people read it. So, well, thank you very much, Ian, for coming on. Um, not only you, but everyone at RSL Soapbox. You guys have a pretty diverse team of writers, and you guys are always putting out good stuff. So it's a it's a pleasure to talk with one of those uh, team members. And yeah, good job to to all you guys down in uh, down in Salt Lake for putting in some good work. 
Well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for reaching out. This has been a great time. Thanks for, thanks a ton for, for being with us. So yeah, that, that was our chat with Ian. I think uh, there was a lot of interesting nuggets. I mean, again, RSL kind of like other teams we've seen in the past this season, like when we interviewed Cody Bradley of Sporting KC, for example, and then with Alicia Rodriguez talking about San Jose Earthquakes. It's one of those teams you know just because they've been around so long. And obviously this year, I guess, with the ownership situation, you saw a little more of them than you're used to seeing in a typical year unless they're obviously competing and going deep in the in the playoffs so it was good just to hear some of the ins and outs and prospects specifically young kids you know the whole Pablo Ruiz situation and at the end the officiating is always interesting to hear from someone who who's got a background in in refereeing and is is talked to pro for example to hear the discussion from pro so yeah I think it was just an overall an all-encompassing good chat well, the thing it was making me think about Alex and that we we actually chatted a little bit with Ian about after we, we stopped recording was just those those scouting booklets or, you know, pamphlets or whatever you want to call it that uh, officials get prior to match and kind of, you know, what the scouting report must be on the Whitecaps, whether it's not holding much possession, whether it's Lucas Cavallini's tendency for sliding in on the press or Christian Dahomey's tendency to go to ground, it's a... I'd really like to, uh, I'd, I'd pay a good bit of money to see what one of those scouting books looks like. So uh, that's something to kind of ponder. Well, it, certainly it must not be favorable for Dahomey. It must not be favorable for Lucas Cavallini. I'm sure Daniel Bikel is getting a nice write-up after uh, his recent sting of early yellow cards and sending off. And then, I mean, certainly there's got to be some chat, something in there on Eric Godoy. Or maybe that enhanced the possibility of a red card because he's a clean player. But at the same time, he's got that South American center back grit about him where he, he definitely must, you know, does a little, those little things behind the, behind the scenes and the get, gets in people's heels and whatnot. But it would certainly be interesting to, to read one of those booklets. And unfortunately, maybe that's why Vancouver struggled so much with VAR and refereeing this past year. Reputations, I mean, think of Robo's Bad Boys, the year with, you know, Kendall Waston, the Christian Techera, Jordi Reyna, Effie Juarez, like the, the you know, La Banda, the red card magnets. I mean, maybe that did something for the Vancouver Whitecaps that we didn't realize at the time. But yeah, I, I, I thought that part was very funny and interesting to, to kind of talk about and learn more about. And then so in terms of our match predictions, uh, not necessarily that I, I nailed it last time, but uh, you, you were on the draw and the Whitecaps took an L. And so at least I was on the right side of the prediction there, albeit not on the score. This time you're going with another 1-1 draw. We didn't get to really quiz you on the show, but like thought process behind that one. I mean, I I feel like at this point, if you predicted a draw every Something's game... Something's got to give at some point, you're thinking. But no, right? for this one, my, my logic was the white caption RSL matched up very well last time. They only, they each had, the shots on target was four to three. The, the expected goals was like 1.9 to 1.4. And that's because RSL looked better at 10 men than they did with 11 for some reason. So assuming both teams keep players on the pitch, which to be honest, I'm actually in my preview, I was saying I, I wouldn't be surprised to see one or two reds. Like obviously it's not hockey. The white caps aren't looking to get revenge for Hassal and take out Beckerman, but well, just based like also a little bit like, like, but not even, it's not even that. It's just, they've been so sloppy the past two games. It just feels like a red card is going to come out of nowhere. So assuming they keep all 11 players on the field, I just feel like 
it's a game where the Whitecaps are just, it's been a long streak. They're just going to play some low event soccer, try to etch out a 1-1. And I just feel like it's, if there's a team I'm looking amongst the fixtures, like you look at that, they still have to play Portland. They still have to play Seattle. They still have to play LA Galaxy, LAFC, uh, San Jose. Teams where it kind of tends to go on one side of the ledger or other or the other. If there's a game amongst the last seven they're going to draw, I feel like this is this one or maybe San Jose at home is, are the two best likely opportunities for them to draw. So I, I'm, I'm going to predict a, a draw on this one based on how middling the Real Salt Lake stats are in every department, goals for or goals against, goal difference, wins, points, um, expected goals for, expected yeah, goals against, just, chances created. They're average in every department. Just dead no. average. I was trying to look for an outlier pre-show doing some research. It's like, man, there's there's nothing here other than tied with Vancouver at four for the most red cards in the league so far this year. That's like the one thing these two teams excel at. And it's like, so look, with that in mind, the Whitecaps are interesting. So they're like the polar opposite. They're like, they're better at scoring in RSL, but their defense is worse. And then their their expected goals map is all over the place because with them, they have the worst expected goals against, or at least close to it. And the same with the worst expected, or no, they have the worst expected goals against by a mile, but then they have the fourth worst expected goals. But that's even both of those stats is because in one game, they'll allow like three or four expected goals against and only score 0.2. And in another game, they'll score a bunch and not allow a lot. So them, it's just so Jekyll and Hyde, whereas RSL is just consistently average. So I feel like in this game, it's going to kind of average out. It's not going to be like San Jose versus Whitecaps or LFC versus Whitecaps, where it's just, just two chaotic teams going at each other. I feel like this is a, a case of RSL being really balanced and then the Whitecaps being so up and down. And since they've been so down lately, it feels like they're kind of going to go on the, the up. And I think that, that meets in the middle with the draw, but I could be perfectly wrong on either either side. I feel like of the games to predict, this is one of the harder ones because, again, like you play LAFC, you play Seattle, play Portland. Okay, the Whitecaps lost. That's not a. It's not exactly a galaxy brain prediction, whereas this one, there's so many ways you can go. Yeah, I'll give credit to your prediction in the sense that I think if both teams walked out of this one with a point, they're not entirely disappointed. Like for RSL, it kind of steadies what they've been doing, and for the Whitecaps, it's just something to grasp onto for a little bit of life. And so I can totally see how that could work out. But I just, I get the sense that Vancouver is going to find a way to, you know, they got a little lucky with the one goal result last time out. I feel like RSL is going to do the reverse to them and get a get a 2-1 win in this one. But uh, Alex, unless you have any final thoughts, I think that pretty much brings an end to this episode. We want to thank Ian Knighton for coming on from RSL Soapbox for everything he had to offer. And uh from me uh you can find me at samuel underscore robeboat on twitter you can find all of our pre-post-match content at 86forever.com and alex over to you i mean the last thing i have to say it's worth noting the high the, the high watermark for losses in a row under mark DeSantos is five if you have a sh- razor sharp memory it was uh last summer when in a span of five games they lost to seattle they lost to um, LAFC, SKC, San Jose, and the fifth team in there, I don't remember which the fifth, what the fifth team was, but it was in July slash late June of last year. Dark so days, if they do lose, if, if they lose in this one, that is the, they're, they're tying the high water mark for losses in a row under Mark DeSanto. So 
that is certainly something to watch out for. Can they avoid the the slump hitting that bad of a of a, uh, of a level? But yeah, aside from that, I mean, I'm just hoping for good soccer. I mean, the last few games have really taken a lot out of me. So yeah, Twitter at Alex Kalingaruzic, BTS Fan City, BTSFanCity.com. See you next time, and hopefully we can talk about positive soccer. Yeah, and the one last thing is uh, keep your eyes out post match because I think if we if there's a match where it's worthy of a post-match live stream, we're going to look into throwing something up on YouTube or Twitter Periscope and kind of doing a, a short little live post-match show, I guess kind of in podcast format, but just our, our basic reactions to to the match, what went on, the team, etc. So yeah, keep your eyes out for that and you know, feel free to dive into the comments or check it out if that's something you might be interested in. So yeah, with that being said, enjoy the match and uh, we'll be back again soon.